This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, I'll go ahead and share my screen here. But what I'll say even before I start is that a lot of what you'll hear about tonight is relatively technical, and I hope you'll join us into a journey deep into the weeds of what we think about every day in my laboratory and particularly the work that Michael, uh, the graduate student who's gonna talk about the, the, the specific work on, on this approach itself. I hope you'll join us for, this, for the very much the technical detail because um, that's really what's required for some of the innovative approaches that we've brought to the table uh, for tackling the pandemic. So even before um, I tell you, you know, what the rest of the talk is going to be about, I, what I want to point out is that uh, I'm, a, I'm a physician scientist by training, but really the work that I do in my lab is very much basic science. We're interested in fundamental problems of how life and biology work. And Michael is uh, one of our graduate students that's interested in the same kinds of questions. And a lot of the technologies that we've been building over the years, both in my lab and across many other laboratories here at UCSF, are technologies that can be very rapidly used to find solutions to a whole host of problems, the SARS coronavirus being one of them. And what's exciting, you know, the silver lining of, of this terrible period in history is that uh, the scientific ability of basically, of almost all scientists has been unleashed to, to tackle this singular problem. So we'll give you our, um, you know, our story on, on uh, a unique perspective or a unique solution to the problem. And, um, and, and you know, over the course of this, series you'll hear about a number of, of, of similar solutions from, for people coming at it from completely different uh, lenses. So the premise of our project is to develop uh, so-called inhalable personal protective equipment. The premise is that uh, you know someone who's just recently learned that they're sick from the virus or is very early in the course of infection could inhale what's coming out of this little nebulizer that's shown on this title slide. And in this mist are molecules that are incredibly uh, potent and effective at blocking the virus. So the story we'll tell you today is um, uh, or, or why you know one would want to do this in the first place. And two, how do we even go about doing this? What are the principles that we use and what does the journey look like? Uh, and you know who are the remarkable trainees that, that basically allowed this to happen? Uh, just some quick disclosures. Um, the one that's pertinent to the talk that uh, you'll hear today is that both Michael and I are inventors on a patent filed by UCSF that pertains to this approach. Um, and, and that's something that we have to do in order to actually get this to, to people eventually. All right, so how does um, the coronavirus actually work? Uh, and there's a lot, an enormous amount that's been learned about coronavirus biology over the past, uh, certainly over the past eight to nine months, but really since the, uh, since the first coronavirus, uh, since the first SARS virus uh, you know, hit the scene almost, almost 17 years ago. So I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty detail, but the one fundamental thing that I'll highlight is that for the virus to get inside your cells of your body, there has to be an interaction between a protein that's on the surface of the virus, and this protein is called the spike protein. The spike protein has to bind a receptor molecule on your cells, and that receptor we know is called, uh, kind of a mouthful, it's called the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor, or ACE2 for short. But it's this one-on-one -on -one interaction between spike and ACE2 that's absolutely required for the virus to gain a toehold into your body in the first place. And once the virus binds 
this ACE2 receptor, it's taken up by cells and that causes infection. So at this point, we know a lot about how this interaction happens. We've been able to map it to the most atomic level of detail and we'll get into you know, how we get the kinds of techniques that we use to really understand it at this level. But suffice it to say right now that we know quite a bit about how this spike protein, again, shown in blue on the top here, binds this purple ACE2 receptor. So simply blocking this interaction between the spike protein and the ACE2 receptor is a very, very effective way of neutralizing the, viral, uh, the entry of, of the SARS coronavirus. And as a result, a number of the strategies that are being developed right now are either uh, everything from vaccines to other therapeutics. Um, many of these strategies target this interaction and try to prevent it from happening. This gets into the notion of, of how your immune system um, does this normally. Now, uh, and I'll walk you through a little bit of, of how the immune system recognizes viruses and the arms of the immune system uh, that enable our bodies to fend off future infections. This is a beautiful slide rendered by Akiko Iwasaki, a, a, a real expert in virology at, at Yale University. And, and because the slide's so good, I just decided to use it directly, but credit, credit to Dr. Iwasaki for this. So the idea is that um, when viruses infect cells of your body, they're recognized by a specialized set of cells called dendritic cells. And these dendritic cells, when they recognize viruses, turn on and, and move from peripherally in your body, let's say your lungs or in your nose, to specialized tissues called lymph nodes. And inside lymph nodes, these dendritic cells do this amazing thing where they tell two different types of cells called B cells and T cells to become active. And these two cell types are uh, the weapons that the immune system has. So the B cells are really remarkable because they, uh, their derivatives called plasma cells secrete molecules called antibodies. And these antibodies are very specific to a, to a specific virus that has attacked you. So that's one way in which your immune system fights off viruses. A second way that your immune system fights off viruses is by so-called T cells. And these T cells are also uh, very specific for specific viruses. And as a result, they can attack both the virus itself or virus-infected cells and control infection that way. So we'll really be focusing on the kinds of molecules that B cells make, these antibodies, uh, to fight off infections. Now, antibodies are amazingly remarkable molecules. The cool thing about antibodies is that every time you see a different virus or every time you see a different pathogen, or uh, your body develops a bespoke antibody for that pathogen. And the way that this happens is that uh, each individual B cell has a different antibody that it makes. So for example, this B cell has seen some virus in the past and its, its, its antibodies are specific for that virus, whereas a different B cell uh, makes antibodies that are very specific for a different virus. And this goes on and on. It's not just for viruses, it's for bacteria or for other pathogens as well. So how could this be? You know, how can your immune system make these amazing antibodies that are super specific for basically anything that you might encounter. But on the flip side, um, um, you know, have to basically deal with this enormous diversity. So it turns out uh, the way that the immune system does this is by making antibodies that by and large are relatively similar in shape and structure, but part of their regions um, enable them to recognize almost an infinitude of antigens. So here I've just schematized this by, this is kind of a, a cartoon depiction of what an antibody that's flowing in your blood or my blood looks like. 
And certain parts of these antibodies change their shapes to match the specific virus or the specific bacterial protein that they're trying to target. And, for, uh, and in this schematic, each one of these differently colored blocks would be, um, would be a different protein you know, from a different virus or a different pathogen. This figure also alludes to the fact that there's some shape complementarity. So for example, this antibody that's shown on the right here binds um, an antigen that has a specific shape but doesn't recognize an antigen with a different shape. And what's really amazing about the immune system is that, um, that even right now in your body or my body, there are at least um, one trillion different possibilities of sh configurational shapes of these antibodies. And that's what enables us to fend off um, basically any infection that we've seen in the past. And even what's more remarkable on top of this is that uh, anytime you see a new pathogen, your body has the ability to make a completely new bespoke antibody against that pathogen. So that's really the premise of vaccination, is that eventually you want to be able to design a vaccine that mimics the proteins on the, uh, that are on the virus such that your body makes your own antibodies to fight off, and fight off infections. So that's one strategy to controlling the virus. Another strategy is, well, it often takes us quite a long time to make ideal vaccines that are safe. Another approach to doing this is, well, what if we could just identify really good antibodies, either from patients or from other sources, that are really good at turning off or, or inactivating the coronavirus? And if we could do that, we could give those antibodies directly, and those would prevent infections or, or, or prevent people from getting sick. That general idea is called passive immunity. Uh, and the idea here is that instead of coaxing your body to develop your own antibodies, we just give you the antibodies directly. Now, there's two ways in which passive immunity uh, is, is being applied for SARS coronavirus 2 or for, for COVID-19 infections. The first idea is really quite old. The idea here, it's, the, the premise is called convalescent plasma, but th this idea goes back almost 100 years. So let's say there's some new pathogen that comes on the scene. Of course, right now, that's, that's um, coronavirus. And you have some patients that succumb to the disease but, be, but got better. And that's basically shown here um, um, on the left. We know that these patients, as part of getting better, must have likely raised antibodies to control that infection. So what if we could simply take units of blood from those, from those patients, uh, people who've recovered from coronavirus and are willing to provide their own blood, and then harvest the part of blood that we know contains the antibodies, in this case, plasma, and then give that to patients that are sick with the coronavirus. So again, this idea has been tried for other pathogens dating back to almost 100 years ago. Uh, and, and in general, it's a strategy that, that, that can really work in some instances. Now, the, Fed, uh, the Food and Drug Administration provided an early use authorization for convalescent plasma in late August for hospitalized patients with COVID-19 infections. And this has been somewhat of a controversial decision as uh, one of the major uh, scientific bodies, the National Institutes of Health, a panel led by, uh, led by that group, concluded that there's insufficient data to really recommend the use of convalescent plasma broadly. And, and while this is a great idea, the real challenge that, there's, that is the safety profile of this approach is unclear. And part of the protocols for really getting this um, um, reliably to work is, it remains unclear. So really what we need are prospective randomized trials. But the exciting thing long-term about convalescent plasma is that this strategy, if we can figure out the logistics, will always be available for, uh, for any new pathogen. In contrast to convalescent plasma, an alternative approach to providing passive immunity 
are monoclonal antibodies. And this has been a lot in the news a lot over the past couple of uh, weeks. The idea here is that instead of taking the whole complex blood product of a patient who's recovered from coronavirus, what if we could identify one antibody that was just really, really good? Uh, and it was good for from both from the perspective of neutralizing the virus, but it was also super stable. We could make it cheaply, all these kinds of things. Uh, and we could identify that antibody, but instead of giving patients the blood product, we would make that antibody at remarkably large scale. We're talking, you know, kilograms upon kilograms of that antibody, and then give that antibody, that one specific antibody to patients infected with COVID-19. So this general strategy, a number of companies started working on uh, almost at the start of the pandemic. And as a result, there are a number of monoclonal antibodies that are currently in late stage clinical trials. Some of them have started to show some efficacy. Uh, one of these, for example, was given to uh, Donald Trump when he was um, uh, you know, admitted for, for coronavirus infection. Um, but really the, the critical thing about monoclonal antibodies is that they have to be given through the blood either for treatment or for prophylaxis. And one of the other challenges about monoclonal antibodies, specifically for coronavirus infections, is that because the infection uh, initially takes hold in the nasal passageways and in the lungs, um, it's really important that the, that the antibody have a high concentration or a high amount of protein in those spaces. But it turns out that antibodies delivered through the blood um, ha have relatively low exposure in those spaces. So only about 0.2% or 0.2% of blood-administered antibodies actually end up in the lungs. So what this leads to is really enormous doses of antibodies required to treat coronavirus infections. And as a result, what we're seeing now is that while these are really exciting um, um, potential therapies, the logistics of really being able to provide people these kinds of medications is unclear. On top of that, antibodies are relatively expensive to produce. And as a result, the broad utility of this approach remains a little bit unclear. So. Um, as part of our project, what we envisioned at the beginning when we started sometime in, in early March was that uh, was an alternative approach to providing passive immunity. So let's say you had that same COVID-19 patient, but perhaps somewhat early in the course of infection. And instead of providing a neutralizing molecule like a monoclonal antibody through the blood, what if you could provide that same kind of approach, a molecule that would bind to the coronavirus protein and proteins and completely prevent it from causing infections, but deliver it through either uh, an aerosol that one could breathe in to really target the lung passageways, or uh, via an aerosol or like a little uh, nasal spray to target the nasal passageways. Now, the critical advantage of this approach is that it could be self-administered. Instead of patients having to come into the hospital or having to go to an infusion center, they could be, uh, you know, given this kind of thing, and, and they could be at home or, uh, or otherwise outside of the healthcare system and, uh, and control their infections on their own. The other big advantage of this approach would be that because it's directly delivered to the site of infection, we could use far less, far smaller doses than are being used for the monoclonal antibodies. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no challenges to this approach. One of the big challenges for, uh, for delivering antibody-like molecules in this manner is that the protein itself would have to be incredibly stable. So it turns out that when you uh, make these kinds of mists, uh, the proteins themselves have to be so hardy that they can tolerate that. And many proteins just simply aren't, aren't stable enough to do that. On top of that, it's a little bit unclear how often one would have to dose this kind of, uh, uh, um, these kinds of molecules through the airways. And, and, and a lot of those kinds of considerations 
are perhaps a little bit less worked out than, than the regular monoclonal antibody approach. Okay, so, so what do antibodies actually look like? I told you I'd get a little bit deep into the weeds on this. This is on the left, it was my cartoon that I showed you earlier on what an antibody looks like. Um, what you're looking at in, 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 in this very complex kind of diagram is actually the structure or the three-dimensional architecture of what an antibody truly looks like. Now, antibodies are complex proteins. They're made of two separate proteins that come together, a heavy and a light chain. And the business end of an antibody, again, this region that enables antibodies to bind essentially any kind of protein that you throw at them, is the so-called FAB region, and that's basically highlighted here. We can zoom in on that region and try to understand what enables antibodies, again, to recognize such a diverse array of, of potential pathogens. And antibodies, as a class of molecules, have what are called complementarity-determining regions. So these loops that I've highlighted in different colors here are regions of the antibody that can vary enormously. And the variants or the, the completely different architectures in this region are, that, are what enable these antibodies to basically recognize all those different types of Legos. If we were to go back to this one slide, those loops, those complementarity-determining regions are these little cups right here. And the shape of these cups is then determined by the specific sequences and conformations of, the, of, of, these, um, of these CDR regions. So that's antibodies in your blood or my blood or any other human's blood. It turns out that, uh, that camelids like alpaca, llamas, and, and other camels make these incredibly cool antibody-like molecules called nanobodies. And nanobodies are basically minimized antibodies. They're just this little piece of the FAB fragment. Uh, and instead of having six loops that allow them to recognize an infinite array of potential pathogens, they only have three. But because they're far simpler, they have a, a number of advantages. One, they're very small. They're only about a tenth the size of a regular antibody. They're incredibly stable, so they're very hardy to both heat stresses or uh, completely drying out or, uh, or even putting in an aerosol. They're very similar to human antibody heavy chains. So as a result, it's very unlikely that your own body will recognize these as something different. And because they're relatively simple, they can be rapidly produced on kilogram scale for relatively cheap. So with that kind of as a premise, we wanted to develop nanobodies that would bind to the spike protein of the coronavirus and prevent infections. And the, that these nanobodies we were hoping could be delivered to the aerosol, to, to the airways with these uh, aerosols. Now, is there any precedence for this kind of approach? And it turns out that, that, that there is. There's a company called Ablinx that, was, that had previously developed uh, inhaled nanobodies for a completely different, different infection called uh, respiratory syncytial virus. This is a virus that primarily causes infants to become quite sick and end up in the hospital. And what this company Ablinx had done was developed a nanobody. So each one of these little blobs is a nanobody that's linked together to be three individual beads on a string that targets a protein very similar to the spike protein of coronavirus. And what they were able to show in first in test tube based assays is that this uh, molecule, which they called ALX0171, was very effective at preventing the virus from infecting, this virus from infecting cells. More importantly, this, uh, this nanobody 
was stable to putting into an aerosol. And these are um, experiments that we do to understand whether once we aerosolize these nanobodies, whether they kind of clump together, and that's a really bad sign. And what you can see, these very sharp peaks are indicative that, that nanobodies, do, that this specific nanobody doesn't do that. They went on to show in a preclinical efficacy model in LAMS that this approach of delivering a nanobody directly to the airways was quite effective at preventing um, infections. And eventually in humans, they were able to show that delivery of this kind of approach was completely safe. And on top of that, uh, it uh, had a half-life of about 20 hours. But what's most exciting is data that they just released for this, for this approach about two or three weeks ago, which is they actually took this molecule all the way to testing in infants. And this is just uh, data from their recently released study. So what you're looking at on the x-axis here is a time course after delivery of one of these uh, nanobodies to these, uh, to these sick infants. And on the y-axis, what you're looking at is whether uh, these investigators could measure uh, culturable virus in the nasal turbinates or in the nasal passages of these patients. So what's really exciting about this data is that the highest dose that they tested, which is in blue here, after a single dose of this uh, approach, about 90% of patients had absolutely no detectable virus in their uh, nasal passageways. Now, the sad thing this, uh, about the study is that these, these patients, by the time they come to the hospital, are really quite sick. So although these molecules are, were very effective at preventing viral, infection, viral replication, they weren't as effective at preventing the clinical course of the disease. So the premise of the program that we're developing now is to really target very early stages of infection uh, because we think that's where, uh, where we will have the maximum benefit. Now, how are nanobodies normally discovered? Let's say you want an antibody against you know, SARS coronavirus or any other virus or any other pathogen. How do you go discover that? The classic way of doing this is highlighted on the top. What you do is uh, you take a purified protein or uh, some sort of... In- uh, you know, inactivated virus, and you basically coax a llama or an alpaca to generate an immune response. You're basically vaccinating this animal, hoping that it will develop these cool antibodies, these minimized antibodies against your target. This process often takes about two to six months to raise that immune response. And then you can do a number of biotechnology approaches to go find those nanobodies within the animal that are specific to your pathogen, let's say in this case, the, the SARS coronavirus. My lab um, over the past couple of years has developed a completely alternative way of doing this. What we do is we make libraries of nanobodies. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, that? What we do is we create sequences of nanobodies, in this case, billions of sequences of nanobodies, and then um, take Baker's yeast, such that, and hook them up in a way such that each individual yeast has a unique nanobody on the surface. And you know, here we've only depicted five of these. These libraries would have billions of, of individual nanobodies. And the idea here is that I told you earlier that you know, your body has up to a trillion different antibodies that enable you to fight off pathogens. Our hope is that these libraries, these synthetic libraries of a billion variants, may have you know, a couple that are specific to the SARS coronavirus or whatever other pathogen you're interested in. So the idea is then that we go fishing with this library. This is our, this is, you know, our pool. 
and we uh, take uh, a given protein that we want an antibody against, and we go fishing in that, in that pool of yeast and pick out the yeast, displaying an antibody on the surface uh, that we want. The key thing about this process is that it's incredibly fast. All of this, this library we basically have made in the past is readily available. And the process to actually find nanobodies against any specific target only takes us about uh, one to two weeks. Now, the specific way that we did this for the, uh, for the SARS coronavirus uh, protein is, again, we started with this pool of yeast, again, about a billion or so yeast, and we purified the spike protein from coronavirus, again, shown by this little uh, blue uh, you know, gadget here, pulled on the spike protein to isolate those yeasts that are specific for spike and, um, and amplified the yeast and repeated that process. Again, something that took, took us about one to two weeks to do. Okay, so um, the rest of the talk, again, is going to focus on how we developed nanobodies to block this interaction between spike and the ACE2 receptor. And that's something that Michael's really going to get into the weeds on. But before I transition to having Michael describe the research, I want to, do, I want to introduce two points that I think are going to be very critical for some of the, uh, the detailed explanation that we'll get into. The first is, if we want to understand how two proteins bind, we need a framework for understanding that binding. So I can tell you that something is tight or binds very tightly to the spike protein or binds not so tightly. But how do we really quantitate that and how do we get numbers on this? And what are the techniques that we use to really evaluate this? This is really important because in order for, uh, for us to have a fighting chance, we need a protein that's going to bind. We need a nanobody that's going to bind incredibly tightly to the spike protein. So basically, once it binds, it never lets go. How do we know that that's the case? Here's a little bit of chemistry and uh, chemistry recap for those of you um, who, can, who can harken back to those days. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the, the equation on the left and then, you know, the kind of the, the sentence to describe what, what that means on the right. So if we want to understand two proteins binding to each other, in this case, let's call them a receptor and a ligand. This would be receptor molecule, you know, receptor molecule and a ligand molecule. They can come together to bind and make a receptor ligand. So that's just simple. R binds L to make RL. The way that we can understand this is we can describe uh, once this reaction runs to equilibrium, so once... Um, it's, it's gone forward and then the amount that can go backwards, once that's all basically come to equilibrium, we can calculate a constant that describes how much of the RL there is and how much of R and L there is. And you can imagine something that binds very tightly. If R and L bind very, very tightly to each other, there'll be a lot more RL in there than separately R or L. That's just you know some, some, uh, relatively simple. But on top of that, we can actually also get at this a different way. If we, for example, had a way of asking how fast do R and L come together, and once they're together, how long do they stay together before they leave? If we had access to those two kinds of rates, we could also understand how tightly they bind. So for example, if, if R and L come together very fast, but once they're together, they take eons to dissociate or come apart, then we know that, that their affinity or their ability to bind to each other is very, very good. So again, these are words kind of describing on the right what, what I just told you. And the reason why this matters is we're going to show you a lot of data that uh, directly tries to get at these rates. So how fast does a given nanobody bind to spike? And then once it's bound, how long does it stay bound to it? Now, the technique that we use to get at this is called surface plasmon resonance. That's, again, a mouthful. We'll probably just shorten it and call it SPR going forward. 
And the general idea behind this technique is that we can take um, a pretty complicated setup where there's a gold surface, but on that gold surface, we can put a protein of choice. So in all the experiments that we'll show you today, on the, uh, on the gold surface, there, it, there will be a spike protein. And then we can flow in, in a liquid solution um, some other protein, either a nanobody or some other protein, and ask um, how well does that nanobody bind to the spike that's immobilized on the surface. This um, will be represented as uh, what's shown on the bottom right here, which is as binding happens, we, we get an increase in this resonance signal. And then if binding stops happening and decreases, then we know that things are falling off. So we can do this kind of experiment trying to validate whether purified spike protein uh, directly binds the ACE2 receptor. This is just our first validation that we do in the lab. And so that's what this experiment looks like. What we're doing here in each one of these red curves. Uh, so again, the spike protein is immobilized on the surface of this, of this chip. And as we uh, flow more and more ACE2, again, that ACE2 receptor is what spike binds in our body, we can see that their signal builds up. And then at this dotted line, we stop adding ACE2, and that ACE2 now has a chance to fall off. So we, what we can then do is fit how fast this happens, how fast this protein comes on, and how fast it comes off. And those are the numbers you're gonna see a number of times. And by using these two uh, numbers, we can calculate a so-called KD, and that's the affinity. That's how tightly things bind. So the smaller this number, and this would be 44 nanomolars, this is 44 parts per billion molar, um, the tighter things bind. So this is a pretty good interaction, but not. But Michael will show you numbers far, far, far better than this. Because that's one kind of technique. That's how we understand if two things bind tight or weakly to each other. Now, the other kind of data that we're going to show you a lot of is we want to understand really not just whether things bind to each other, but how do they bind? What are the kinds of atomic interactions that happen that enable this binding to happen? And this is the kind of work that we do in my lab and a kind of the nitty gritty um, uh, approaches that are required to really being able to do this uh, effectively. And there's two techniques. If we want to understand life at the most basic level, we can't just put them under a simple light microscope. There are a number of techniques and I'll highlight two of them that allow us to really map where every single atom is in space. The classic way of doing this is a technique called X-ray crystallography. The idea here is if you can coax your protein of interest or your molecule of interest into a crystal, very similar to the crystals of sodium and chloride that you use for table salt. If you can, if you can coax them into a crystal, you can shoot those crystals with X-rays. And those X-rays interact with those crystals in, 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 interest, in an interest, interesting manner to cause a pattern that you can detect with detectors. And uh, using some well-worked out math, we can use that pattern to then go find out where every single atom in this crystal is. So that's one way, that's the classic way of doing this. Over the past decade, there's been a revolution in a technique called cryo-electron microscopy. This is work in part done here at UCSF, where instead of having to coax these proteins into a crystal, we can directly freeze these proteins and image them instead of with an X-ray beam with an electron beam. And what we get at the end of the day are very, very noisy particles, very, very noisy images of the particles, of the protein particles themselves. But with new computational methods, we can average together these very noisy pictures to really get a three-dimensional view of what our proteins look like. So Michael will be showing you a lot of cryo-electron microscopy images that enable us to understand in atomic detail how our proteins actually work. 
just to give you a little bit of a primer of what that data looks like. On the left here, again, is just one of those electron microscopy images. You can see this looks almost like static. But within this, what looks like static, um, is actual real data. And, um, and this, for example, in this multicolored image, is uh, what the three-dimensional structure of the spike protein of coronavirus actually looks like. So um, again, this is like the 3D envelope of, the, of that structure. And you can see it's actually a pretty, pretty beautiful protein with this threefold symmetry. So with that, I'll stop. And um, what, we're gonna, what you're going to hear about next is um, our efforts to uh, identify nanobodies that are incredibly potent for the coronavirus spike protein. Uh, before I hand it off to Michael, I want to highlight that this was an amazing uh, UCSF collaboration uh, between my lab and Peter Walter's lab, work led by Michael, who, who you hear from, in addition to a number of really amazing and talented graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in my lab and, uh, and in Peter's lab. Uh, and we're joined by an amazing group of collaborators, both here at UCSF, uh, across the country in New York, uh, as well as uh, you know, around the world, and, uh, and Veronica especially uh, is uh, one of our amazing collaborators at the Institute of Pasteur. A lot of the structural biology work that you'll hear about uh, was led by a new way of doing uh, science called the QBI Coronavirus Consortium, uh, and you'll hear some of the, the, the amazing work that's come out of there too. So with that, I'll, I'll uh, hand it over to Michael and he'll, he'll uh, walk you through uh, the, what he's done and, and the team that he's been leading. Thank you very much, Ashish, for that wonderful uh, introduction. Um, so as Ashish mentioned, we uh, did a screen using the yeast surface display technology. And what I'll walk you through on the left side here is sort of in practice, what we used, which is that we took um, purified spike protein, so the protein that coats the surface of viral particles, we incubated it with the yeast at 200 nanomolar concentration, we pulled out yeast that bind, we did it at a slightly lower concentration a second time in order to get higher affinity binders, and then we did it a third time at an even lower concentration to further enrich for high affinity binders. And then what we did was we took those yeast, and so you have a little test tube that's got your um, thousands to hundreds of thousands to billions of yeast, and what you can do is uh, plate them all out, and then individual colonies will grow, and then you can pick those individual colonies, and what that represents is just like in the immune system where you have a B cell that has one nanobot, one antibody on its surface, this will be a yeast that has one nanobody on its surface. And from there, we can uh, find the sequence of that nanobody, purify it, and test it to see, does it bind to the spike protein? What is the affinity that it binds to the spike protein? Does it block an interaction between that spike protein and ACE2? And so what we're seeing here in the middle graph is this SPR trace, uh, the technology that Ashish just told you, where you immobilize spike protein on the surface, and then you flow over a nanobody. In this case, it's a nanobody that I will refer to as nanobody 6. And you flow it over the surface at varying concentrations, and you see that it goes on, binds to the spike protein very, very rapidly, and then it dissociates somewhat rapidly as well. And so when you look at this on rate and this off rate, you can calculate an affinity, 
And as we saw previously in the case of ACE2, which had about a 44 nanomolar affinity, this nanobody called nanobody 6 has about a 210 nanomolar affinity. So it's slightly worse, but in the same ballpark as the affinity that ACE2 has for spike. And one other interesting thing that you can do is you can purify specific domains of a protein. In this case, we purified the receptor binding domain, which is the portion of the spike protein that directly engages ACE2, the receptor on the surface of our cells. And what's interesting is in this context, uh, the nanobody, nanobody 6, binds about five times more tightly than to the full length spike which speaks to the fact that this receptor binding domain can exist either in a hidden state or an open state. And this is a biology that has been, been known previously, but it's, it's interesting to see uh, in our own hands that the uh, accessibility of what you're binding to can impact the affinity that you observe. Moving on, what we then... Uh, did was the second technique that uh, Ashish mentioned, which is using cryoelectron microscopy in order to determine uh, where exactly our nanobodies are binding. So we, what we saw previously was that we know nanobody, the nanobody 6, is binding to the spike protein, and we know that it's binding to the receptor binding domain. But we don't know the exact orientation that it's binding, and so what we did was we mixed together your spike protein and your nanobody, take a bunch of these images, use computational modeling to figure out what this, this uh, interaction actually looks like. And what we see is this nanobody, nanobody 6, is actually quite interesting. And so it engages a primary RBD here, receptor binding domain, but it also makes some secondary contacts with a neighboring receptor binding domain. Now this is in direct contrast to another nanobody with similar affinity, but it, it called nanobody 11, which also binds to the receptor binding domain, but binds in a slightly different orientation. So as you can see here, it, it binds and sort of sticks upward and doesn't make uh, any contacts with the uh, neighboring uh, receptor binding domain. So what we're showing here now is a zoomed in version from of a top view and a side view of these two nanobodies. So nanobody 6, which is engaging a primary RBD, as well as a secondary RBD, and nanobody 3, uh, nanobody 11, which is uh, engaging a primary RBD, but not engaging a secondary RBD. And what I hope you can uh, see from this overlay that we have on the right-hand side is that both nanobody 11 and nanobody 6 are directly occluding binding of ACE2 to that receptor binding domain. So in the presence of nanobody 11 and nanobody 6, ACE2 simply can't interact with the spike protein, which is necessary for granting entry into cells. So what I showed you previously was the fact that nanobody 6 uh, binds to the spike protein, that it binds in a very unique uh, way to the spike protein, and that it has a potency that is roughly on the order of ACE2 receptor. So how do we make this better? So one strategy that was employed um, by a similar nanobody technology by that company, Ablinks, is you can trimerize it. And so what we 
did next was we took um, that structural data that we uh, previously showed you and we used this to inform how we were going to link up our previous, our discovered nanobodies. And so what we see when the spike protein is bound to nanobodies when those receptor binding domains are all in the inactive down state, we see that the distance between ends of the nanobody is roughly 52 angstroms, which is on the order of um, about 15 amino acids, 15-ish amino acids. Whereas when a receptor binding domain is flipped into the open state, and this is a state that allows that receptor binding domain to directly engage with the ACE2 receptor, you see that it's larger. So if you can make a linker that is just the right size in order to engage when it's in the all-down state, but not long enough to engage when it's in the all-up state, not only can you block ACE2 from interacting with the spike protein, but you can also lock the spike protein into an inactive state. And there's further precedent for us being able to do this because of the fact that this nanobody, nanobody 6, engages two RBDs when it is in the all-down state. This is in contrast to the other nanobody that we showed you, nanobody 11, which, whether it's in the down state or in the up state, either the closed or the open state, you see that the uh, length between your two nanobody monomers, if they're engaging multiple receptor binding domains, is relatively similar. So what we would expect is if you multimerize a nanobody that behaves like nanobody 6, we would expect it to drive major gains in potency. So what happens when you trimerize them or dimerize them. So what we are showing here are, again, those surface plasmon resonance um, uh, traces. And you see that a monomer of nanobody 6 binds very rapidly and then dissociates very rapidly. However, if you make a dimer of nanobody 6, so a molecule that is capable of engaging uh, two receptor binding domains, you see that it binds very rapidly there's a slow phase that dissociates somewhat rapidly, and then a, a, uh, a fast phase that dissociates very really rapidly, and then a slow phase that dissociates very slowly. And then if you trimerize the molecule, you see that there are even more dramatic gains. So again, you have this fast phase with some rapid dissociation, but then there's a slow phase that's essentially a flat line. And what this flat line basically means is that a molecule, the trivalent nanobody 6, has engaged with the spike protein and is not coming off. It's stuck on there. And the affinity that we measure for this type of an interaction, what we were talking about previously was nanomolar. Below that is picomolar. This is probably into the femtomolar range. So this is dramatic affinity. This is stick and doesn't come off for over a week. So this is, these are some pretty dramatic gains in potency. So one interesting thing was that, sl that fast phase that we saw here. What, did, what is that fast phase that we saw there? Is that some weird aberration, or is that something that's biologically interesting? And so as I've mentioned before, um, a receptor binding domain can exist either in a down state or in an up state. And it 
interconverts between these two states, and when it's in the upstate, it can bind to ACE2. Now, what we theorized was happening is that sometimes a receptor-binding domain was in the upstate. Trivalent nanobody 6 or bivalent nanobody 6 would engage with a receptor-binding domain that is in the upstate, and because of the distance between that upstate and the downstate, that trivalent molecule would not be able to fully engage with all the other receptor-binding domains. So what we theorized was that this, this fast phase that we saw, where nanobody is rapidly falling off, what this represents is engagement of an RBD in the upstate. So what we did was we again flowed nanobody over the surface of the spike, but we varied how long we flowed nanobody over the surface of the spike, anywhere from a few seconds to 10 minutes. And what we saw was that when you allow nanobody to continuously flow over the surface of spike, that over time, that fast phase of dissociation disappears. And what this means is that eventually that receptor binding domain that's in the upstate will flip into the downstate. And once it's flipped into the downstate, then your trivalent nanobody, three nanobodies linked together, can engage all three receptor binding domains on a spike protein. And if you plot the percent uh, slow phase versus fast phase uh, as a relation to time, what you see is when you allow more and more and more time for the nanobody to associate, that fast phase basically disappears. And this is... I must say, this is a very cool experiment that we were very excited to see, that it's, it's a really beautiful way to show uh, kind of the mobility of a protein domain uh, in a very uh, unique way. And it speaks to the flexibility of the spike protein as well as the potency and mechanism of action for a, our trivalent nanobody. So basically what this is saying is, Given sufficient time, a trivalent nanobody can bind to all three receptor binding domains and it'll lock them all in the down state, this inactive state. So the big question now is, does this thing work? So what we've told you is we found this nanobody, we showed you where it binds, and we told you that it binds pretty damn tightly to the spike protein. But does that do any good? And so we directly tested it in two different assays. So one assay, which is on the right, which I'll describe first in conceptually, is does it prevent live SARS-CoV-2 from infecting cells? The assay on the left um, is does it uh, prevent infection of this thing called pseudovirus? So what you can do in a pseudovirus assay is you take a, a different virus that isn't dangerous, but nonetheless has a different type of spike protein on its surface, and you replace that spike protein with the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. So now what you've got is a not dangerous virus, but a virus nonetheless that has the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein on the surface of that viral particle. And you can use that uh, to infect cells, and it can also be carrying a fluorescent marker, uh, that you can use to tell whether or not a cell has been infected or not. And so 
this thing is called pseudovirus, and the more conceptually straightforward thing is live virus, where you simply look, does this kill the cells? And so in the context of pseudovirus, I'll walk you through what all these traces are. This black line uh, is ACE2 uh, FC, which is basically a bivalent ACE2. So two copies of ACE2 fused together. And in gray, you've got monomeric ACE2. And so I, I hope it can be kind of conceptually straightforward as to why if you mix in soluble ACE2, which we know bind to the spike protein, why that can sort of sequester these pseudoviral particles away and prevent them from uh, interacting with the ACE2 receptor that is on your cells. And so your monomeric ACE2 will uh, block your infection with about a one micromolar IC50. So with if you have one micromolar of ACE2 in there, you'll block about 50% of infection. And then our monomeric nanobody 6, which we saw was a slightly weaker binder to ACE2, blocks in that roughly micromolar range, which makes sense. However, when you have a trivalent version of nanobody 6, this molecule that we showed you binds with exceptional potency. It has about a one nanomolar IC50. So you really need a very small amount of it. You need about a thousandfold less of this trivalent nanobody 6 to block uh, infection as you would with monomeric regular old ACE2, which is the thing that the spike protein was designed to interact with. And similarly, uh, if you look at trivalent nanobody 11, which was that molecule I described, which doesn't quite have that optimal distance between the uh, different uh, monomers of the nanobody, which means that the linker isn't quite long enough to span it and allow full trivalent engagement, what you see is, again, that, that monomeric nanobody 11 is potent, but the trivalent nanobody 11 doesn't drive nearly the gain in potency that you see with this nanobody 6 molecule, which is optimized as a trivalent molecule based on the length of its linker. And if you, we now turn to a live virus assay, where basically what you do is you take your live SARS-CoV-2, and this was done with our collaborators in Paris, and it needs to be done under very special um, conditions, very high safety levels. What you do there is you take your live SARS-CoV-2, you uh, mix it with your nanobody or not nanobody, and then you infect cells, and then you let it sit for a few days, uh, and you see where are the live cells, where are the dead cells, where did, um, where did uh, viral replication happen, and more viruses popped out of that cell and then killed the cells surrounding it. And so you can kind of look at a plate, stain it, and see where are there a bunch of live cells, where are there a bunch of dead cells. And again, what we see even more dramatically than we saw in the pseudovirus assay, which is always nice to see, is that trivalent nanobody 6 is a dramatic improvement and an incredibly potent inhibitor, about 100 picomolar in this assay compared to multiple micromolar for the monomeric version. So we're talking about a 5,000-fold improvement in potency and about a 200-fold improvement compared to a bivalent ACE2. So I hope, I hope everybody can appreciate 
how incredibly potent that molecule is, but we decided to make it even more potent. So one way that you can drive affinity is by uh, multimerizing, as we previously showed. But another way that you can drive affinity is sort of through this classical affinity maturation technique where you optimize all the different amino acids on a molecule that are relevant for making contacts with the other protein that it's interacting with. And so what I'd like to describe now is that campaign, which is affinity maturation of nanobody 6. And what I'd like to show you here is uh, the comparing monomers and how we got them. So how do you get these? So what we previously did was we had a library with billions of unique nanobody sequences. And from there, we pulled out a nanobody, which we termed nanobody 6, that was pretty potent, uh, but we wanted to make it more potent. So what we did was we made a saturation mutagenesis library where we modified single uh, amino acids in these loops that are important for recognizing the spike protein. We just change one, change one to every single amino acid that it can be. Made a new library that has all these different variants in it and then repeated the process and found what mutations made this nanobody bind even more potently to the spike protein. And what was very exciting is that two mutations floated to the top. So there was one mutation in CDR3, which engages the uh, secondary receptor binding domain. And there was another mutation in CDR1, which engages the primary receptor binding domain. And in a little bit, I'll get into the weeds on kind of what those mutations actually did. But first, I'd like to show you the dramatic gains in potency that these mutations gave us. So as we showed you previously, the monomeric version of nanobody 6 goes on really rapidly and comes off really rapidly, and it has about a 210 nanomolar affinity. However, when you use the affinity matured version of nanobody 6, what you see is it, again, goes on fairly rapidly, and it dissociates very, very slowly. And this is about a 500-fold gain in affinity that we generated by two simple point mutations in the CDR loops of this molecule, which is quite amazing, to be honest. Um, you don't often see this. So the next thing that we did was we wanted to figure out how exactly are these modifications uh, optimizing uh, the affinity that this nanobody has for the spike protein. And so again, we turned to cryo-EM in order to determine a structure of matured nanobody 6 or MNB6 to the spike protein. And what you see in purple here is our matured nanobody 6. And as we can expect, it binds in a very similar manner to the parent molecule, nanobody 6. It binds to a primary RBD, and it has uh, contacts with a secondary RBD. You do see that there are some minor changes that occur. The receptor binding domains are tweaked a little bit in their conformation. But what I'll show you next are sort of the major changes that arise um, when you modify nanobody 6 into the matured version of nanobody 6. 
Now in the upper right hand uh, panel here, what we're seeing is the change in CDR1, where you have an isoleucine is modified to a tyrosine, and more or less the loop uh, shape of nanobody 6 stays the same. However, this modification dramatically changes the local contacts. So it's, it's, it well, doesn't dramatically change, it optimizes the local contacts and is driving a gain in potency by kind of picking the best amino acid that you could have for that environment. Now, CDR3, by contrast, is an entirely different story where you have a proline to tyrosine uh, modification that leads to a dramatic rearrangement of the loop. So this is about a 13 angstrom shift uh, in, in position, and it's completely changing the contacts that this uh, CDR is making, which is an entirely unexpected result uh, that we were absolutely uh, kind of shocked to see. But nonetheless, this is really amazing that it is driving... Uh, these massive gains in potency through two somewhat unique mechanisms. One, an optimization of local contacts, and two, a complete rearrangement and changing of those contacts. And so what we ultimately made was a molecule that is very, very potent and very, very good at binding to SARS-CoV-2. But what we want isn't necessarily something, isn't just something that binds to uh, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. What we want is something that can be used as a therapeutic. And one thing that you must keep in mind when you're making a, a therapeutic is just like if you have a virus that enters your cell and can activate the immune response, if you're going to add in a protein-based therapeutic, you want to make sure that you're not activating the immune response in the same exact way that a virus and viral proteins would be activating the immune system. So what we turn to next is a strategy called humanization, where we want to make this protein, this nanobody, look like something that the body wasn't, wouldn't think twice about. So if you have a viral protein that comes into the cell, it's recognized as other. If we're going to put a nanobody into the cell, we want it to not think that it's in other. We want it to think that it's human and that it belongs. Luckily, uh, nanobody, uh, nanobodies are already pretty similar to antibodies, to um, the heavy chain of uh, human antibodies. And so what you can do in order to uh, prevent an immune response, this immunogenic uh, response, is you can... Uh, transplant some of the amino acids that you would normally find, transplant the CDRs, uh, these, these loops that recognize the uh, spike protein, and put them onto the framework of a human heavy chain. So something that the uh, body wouldn't think twice about seeing because it already sees it, but put these loops that we know interact with the uh, spike protein plop them on this framework that won't be immunogenic. The danger, of course, is if you're putting this on a, a new scaffold, will this in any way change the affinity that your molecule has for the spike protein? And we tested a few different frameworks, and we did see that some frameworks uh, modified the affinity. 
but very excitingly, we found a framework that didn't. And so what I'm showing you here on the left is the affinity that the, uh, mat the trivalent matured nanobody 6 has for uh, the spike protein. So again, you flow it on, binds very rapidly. When you start your dissociation, it doesn't come off. So it binds so tightly that uh, even, even if it's binding to an upstate receptor binding domain, that monomeric version can latch on long enough until it flips to the downstate, and then everything can engage in a full trivalent fashion. So this guy is binding, and it would take over eight days, probably even longer, for one of these molecules to fall off the spike protein. For all intents and purposes, you can, you can consider that a spike that is bound trivalent matured nanobody 6 will always have that molecule stuck to it. So critically, what we wanted to make sure is, does the humanized version of this molecule retain this exceptional potency, this amazing binding affinity? And so we made this humanized version that has an uh, a framework that shouldn't be immunogenic. We put those CDRs that we know bind very tightly onto it. We purified that nanobody. We floated over the spike protein and monitored affinity by SBR. And excitingly, we saw that, nope, doesn't change the affinity. You can humanize this molecule so it won't be immunogenic, and it still binds exceptionally tightly to, to the spike protein. And so the next step is you've, you've made this thing affinity matured. You've humanized it. You've trimerized it. Does this work? And so again, what we did was we uh, infected uh, cells with live SARS-CoV-2. And what I'm showing here is a comparison of the different generations of our molecule. And so in this light blue trace, what you see is original nanobody 6, which has about a 5 micromolar IC50. So it's going to take a lot of that molecule in order to neutralize SARS-CoV-2. If you mature the nanobody, so matured nanobody 6, which is this light green dashed line, so you've got a monomer that's now much, much more potent. So about a 500-fold, 200 to 500-fold increase in potency that you're getting from this affinity maturation campaign. If you trimerize these molecules, as we see in the solid blue and the solid green line, as we showed previously, you get dramatic gains in potency. And if you humanize it, which is what we see in this uh, brown line, you really don't change your potency. And so there's two things that I'd really like to focus on here. One of which is that uh, we're likely hitting the floor of our assay. So you'll run into a point where if you have, you know, a thousand molecules of, of SARS-CoV-2 that are infecting a cell if you only have 100 molecules of your nanobody, you're not going to be able to block all of those, those SARS-CoV-2 viral particles from infecting cells, and, and that's going to be a scenario of ligand depletion. So what we're in a regime of dramatic potency where really what's likely happening is you're running into a scenario where you're running out of molecules uh, to do everything that you need. So... I'm going to move on to the next uh, part of our talk, which is uh, basically just how, pot how potent our stuff is is great, but how stable it is is another thing that we really care about. And what I'm showing you here is uh, 
basically on, on your y-axis is sort of a measure of your stability and on the x-axis is the temperature. And what you see is that both for the monomeric and the trimeric version of our molecule, uh, it takes very high temperatures, so 60 plus degrees Celsius, in order to cause your protein to unfold and sort of melt. And so that's one uh, measure of stability. So another measure of stability is can your molecule be aerosolized? And that's an important uh, characteristic of aerosolized like this in a little mesh nebulizer. That's an important characteristic any time that you want to deliver a molecule via nasal spray or via an aerosol. And so what we did in order to test this was we took our molecule, aerosolized it, collected that molecule, and then ran it over a column called a sizing column, which can basically separate things based on how big or how small they are. And critically, what we see is that either in the uh, pre- or post-aerosolized form, you don't really see a dramatic change. So these molecules are a characteristic size, and when you aerosolize them, they stay as that size. They don't really aggregate up into the larger space and get all jumbled up and broken. Similarly, what you can do is lyophilize, which is a process where you kind of uh, freeze-dry. You basically suck all the all the water out and it turns into a powder. And this makes things really easy to ship all across the world because you can just ship it at room temperature. And you can similarly lyophilize it, so dry it down, take it wherever you want, resuspend it, same thing. Still very, still very stable to that. And when you test it in uh, virus neutralization assays, we also see that your molecule can be aerosolized doesn't change your ability to neutralize virus. It can be lyophilized, and it can be heated. And so these are very important characteristics. You don't just want a molecule that's potent. You want something that's stable. And what I hope I've, I've uh, gone through is sort of the, the pathway in order to find a molecule that's really potent and also validate that it's really, really stable. And so... Um, I think I'll turn things back over to Ashish in order to sort of uh, talk about the uh, more clinical side of where we hope to go. Great. Thanks, Michael, for going over that um, really remarkable set of data. Um, I don't have a lot more to add. I think, you know, I think Michael went through the, the deep nitty gritty details of, of how we build a molecule like this. I think we're at a unique position now that we have a molecule that could actually start to get at this notion of providing passive immunity or uh, providing an, an inhalable form of personal protective equipment. Hopefully what you're able to glean from Michael's discussion is that this molecule really is almost like a mousetrap. It binds to that spike protein with incredibly, incredibly tightly, and once it binds, it never lets go. There's precedence for this kind of approach for other viruses, for preventing viral replication. And so really what we think the unique advantage of an approach like this is for patients that are, again, very early in the course of infection, um, patients that are high risk, that are exposed to coronavirus patients like healthcare workers or, um, or nursing home residents, or other people that are generally high risk might benefit immensely from this, uh, uh, from this approach to providing passive immunity. 
But with like many other um, you know projects in the academic setting, or again, I want to remind you that this project wasn't really done by an industry group. This was done by a group of graduate students and uh, postdoctoral fellows. Um, you know, Mike, Michael being a prime example of this group. The challenge for any of our academic groups to get this to make this reality is crossing the so-called translational valley of death. So it's been known for some time that really great ideas that come out of the academic setting often have a hard time um, finding their way into practical utility. And and this is an image I like to use. Uh, This is uh, a picture that my wife and I took coming back from uh, Nevada, from the Grand Canyon into into California. And this is Death Valley as you encounter it from, uh, from the other side. And, you know, really uh, where we are in this process is somewhere, you know, deep in the valley of death right now. We have some really great prospects for industry groups that are um, weighing whether it makes sense to enter a new th- enter into a new therapeutic for, for coronavirus. Uh, but long term, we think these approaches to tackling respiratory viruses, especially respiratory pandemics, is likely to have some value. Um, and certainly for this pandemic, we think that uh, this approach could really provide a very differentiated way of of tackling the virus. So with that, um, again, I'll leave you with the acknowledgement slide so you can, you know, um, stare at that. And, um, and and with that, we'll, you know, open it up to the question and answer uh, session if, if people have uh, thoughts or, or, or questions that, that we can tackle right now. All right. That's great. Thank you, Michael and Ashish. And Ashish, uh, I don't know if you can see the Q&As. Yes, I have them. Okay, great. Um, so I'll just... Um, you know, flip between myself and Michael for some of these questions. The first question is from Rosemary Juan. Uh, the question is, why were camelids chosen rather than a primate or a human? Thanks. Uh, Michael, you want to take that on? Yeah. So um, in a camelid, you will have a very unique uh, type of antibody. So camelids have a single chain antibody. So it just has a heavy chain that is responsible for engaging with an antigen, whereas humans will have both a heavy chain and a light chain. And so what a a camelid antibody allows you to do is basically just clip off the top of that heavy chain, which we term a nanobody, and use that in order to recognize your antigen. And just as an aside, this was a very cool discovery uh, that was not necessarily expected. So for the longest time, you know, we, we, we thought that the heavy and light chains that humans and all other animals had was the only way to do it. And then it was discovered that camelids and also uh, sharks uh, have these uh, single uh, chain antibodies. So very unique thing that nature uh, made, and we just take advantage of that. Great. Thanks, Michael. Um, The second question is from Christina uh, Christian Chen, who asks, how long does it take to produce a usable dose of a humanized nanobody from the initial unmodified uh, nanobody. Uh, I guess I'll take this. Um, the, there's a process of engineering the molecule itself. And you know that process took Michael and the rest of our team about three months to do from start to finish, starting from one of our libraries. But um, even from you know, having this um, blueprint of a molecule, uh, and you know, we can make laboratory quantities of this molecule, uh, going from there to to a usable dose for humans is a completely different ballgame. You know, there's one thing, uh, there's the kind of work that Michael or I or you know people in my lab can do at, at UCSF, um, 
But believe me, you don't want to be putting that kind of material into your body. You know, there's a lot of very important regulatory work uh, for any kind of protein therapeutic that has to be done in order to uh, administer that to a person. So that's really the phase that we are right now is to find groups that have that relevant expertise and the experience to take the, the really exciting molecule that we have in hand, but to really make it into a, into a usable dose for, uh, for testing in humans and eventually, hopefully, for, for actually um, uh, therapeutic use more broadly. Right, the next question is from uh, Joanne Cagle. Um, how do you define very early diagnosis, and at what point might this intervention not be viable? Uh, Michael, you want to take that on first, then I can add, you know, my own thoughts. But I think people will actually, I think you'll find that uh, answers to this question are probably pretty variable among um, among scientists. Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think it, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer it as best I can, which is that as early as possible. Uh, so the moment that someone is PCR positive um, is when we would envision is the best case scenario that you would want to deliver this. So the moment you know that you have detectable virus in you, you'd want to start taking something like this because every day that you allow uh, the virus to replicate uh, is going to be a day that this thing would get less and less effective. And I'll take it to an extreme and say, once you have um, a full-blown infection and your lungs are glassy and you've got all of these uh, issues, something like this, which is designed to prevent uh, replication of the virus and viral entry isn't going to be very effective. So another way, another um, group of individuals that this could be uh, very effective in is people who, uh, it's, it's even before they've been diagnosed. So let's say your roommate or someone you live with uh, or interacted with was diagnosed as being uh, infected, then you could potentially uh, start taking this molecule as a prophylactic in order to uh, nip it in the bud. Ashish, anything to add on that? No, that's great. Um, I think we have evidence now from the respiratory syncytial virus data that um, that other study that I mentioned from Ablink said really targeting early infections is important. And this is almost certainly going to be the case for some of the monoclonal antibody approaches as well. We think that the unique ability of uh, enabling patients to self-administer this to themselves at home may enable really targeting, um, you know, very early stages of infection. I mean, if you think about it right now, what happens to a patient that just learns that they've either been exposed to someone or, you know, are in the early stages of infection, you know, we largely tell them to quarantine until they have symptoms that are severe enough to, uh, to warrant coming to the hospital. So we think that, again, this approach, because it's so patient-friendly, may enable us to um, help patients who are pretty early in the course of infection. And that's where all of these viral entry inhibitors will have, will have their most, um, uh, will be most effective. Great. Um, next question is from Spencer Robinson. Um, an amazing amount of work produced under extraordinary circumstances. Um, the term, um, the comment is really on the term uh, inhalable PPE. Um, and really, when we think of PPE, we think of materials that prevent the entry of the virus into our system. Um, and so these, you know, these molecules aren't really inactivating the, these molecules are inactivating the virus, not really preventing their entry. Any comments in the name of inhalable PPE? Um, so I'll take this, uh, and, and Michael, you can add if you want. Um, we've tried to, you know, one of the big challenges in, in scientific communication is finding ways of, of, enabling people to engage with, um, 
with what we've actually done. So we agree that, you know, the the perspective that you're providing here, that uh, it's not really a form of personal protective equipment. Uh, but in some ways, the way we view it, you know, in the kind of the very um, ideal scenario, let's say this an approach like this is very safe and broadly deployable, it might provide an adjunct to PPE that's even far more effective than than PPE. This isn't to say that it would replace PPE, but it would be, um, let's say you are going to get on a long haul flight from here to Australia um, and you want some way of per- decreasing your odds of getting sick. In addition to the mask that you'd wear, perhaps, um, you know, a dose of an Aronab would, would really provide that kind of protection. So um, really the the premise of using the inhalable PPE term was really to engage with uh, with people and, and, and with the experience that they currently have. Um, uh, but really, we think of this, you know, as, as a therapeutic and in the ideal setting as a way of really decreasing the probability of getting sick. Michael, you want to add anything, any other comments to that? I, th- I think that, you know, handles it. It's just a way to uh, engage people and get them, get them uh, describe a fairly complicated thing and something that they've heard already. Great. Uh, next question is from Corey Silver. Um, the question is, how many other labs are working on similar efforts and is there an entity, e.g. like the CDC, that is enabling collaboration across the field? Is the competitive process working here uh, or would a stronger arm from the government be preferred? Um, so there are a few other laboratories that are working on trying to find laboratories, you know, academic groups and industry groups that are trying to find um, inhaled therapeutics and in specific inhaled antibody-like molecules. Um, We've benefited enormously in our own work from collaborating with some of those groups. Um, And there's a healthy dose of competition. You know, there's, um, you know, we think our molecules are great and and there are great other molecules that are progressing uh, as well. Um, The CDC has not been really the group that's been driving any kind of collaboration, mostly because they focus on public health. By contrast, the National Institutes of Health has uh, really been quarterbacking a lot of the efforts to coordinate uh, various groups that want to run clinical trials in the COVID-19 space. Um, and, and we've had great conversations with some of those groups to, um, to, uh, to you know, plot what the, what the ideal path forward may be. Uh, Ashish, we've got one other one. We've got uh, anonymous attendee that says... Uh, Given this may end up in users' hands, is there any risk of overdosing on these nanobodies? Michael, you want to take that? Yeah. Um, so, broadly speaking, no, I don't think so. Um, what we've seen from a lot of our data uh, is that you can give really large amounts of these to uh, cells and it doesn't really seem to impact them in the same way that say if you give a large molar quantity of remdesivir to a cell uh, that's in the context of cell culture if you want to actually see what is a safe dose for a person this will need to be borne out in human trials but based on past experience with antibody dosing and with other uh, nanobody therapeutics there doesn't really seem to be any uh, worry about, uh, you know, overdosing in that sense. The only thing that I'll add to this is that, um, you know, at a very simplistic level, this molecule is designed to be incredibly specific for the virus. Unlike a lot of other therapies that people are taking forward that are trying to change something about the human body, either the immune system or 
uh, or some other aspect of human biology, this, this, these, these nanobodies are meant to be very, very specific for the virus. So as a result, we think that the probability of having some sort of safety problem is relatively low. Uh, but again, we don't, you know, that's why we do clinical trials. We have to have um, um, real human data before we could uh, ever think about, you know, providing this um, uh, more broadly. Um, there's a question from um, Clara Hancock in the chat, which I'll take. Uh, what are the next steps for this approach? What is the timeline for bringing this therapeutic to market? And I think along those same lines, Mary Murphy in the chat asks, how long did it take the RSV company to bring their drug to use in humans? What would be the best case scenario for your product? So this is, I think, um, you know, I'll group all of these kinds of questions, which is how fast can you get there kind of, um, uh, kind of questions. Um, so the, the real um, limitation to bringing this to market is... Uh, from our perspective, finding uh, an industry partner who has the ability and, and more importantly, the resources, both the financial resources and the, the you know, personnel resources with the right kinds of expertise uh, to do what's, what's practically required for drug development. So that's everything from how do you scale something like this you know, safely to make kilogram quantities of it? How do you um, go through the kinds of preliminary safety studies that are required by the FDA to even start a clinical trial. And then once you want to test a molecule like this in humans, what is the ideal clinical trial to do? You know, you don't, you don't, you know, it's basically, it's going to be very hard to run a trial that's incredibly large that enrolls thousands of people like we have to do with the vaccines. By contrast, you want a large enough trial with the right kinds of patients to, to make sure that if there's going to be, if it's going to be effective, that you're going to have a signal there. So again, these are all things that are outside of the realm of our direct expertise, and that's the kind of partner that we're uh, deep you know, in discussions with right now. We've got two more in the chat that I'm going to group together, uh, which is, were there any notable benefits of nanobody 11 as opposed to nanobody 6? And uh, would virus mutations affect the efficacy of the pathway you've described? I'm going to group these two together uh, in order to say that, were there any notable benefits uh, I'll, I'll answer the second one first, which is that coronaviruses, thankfully, mutate much more slowly than a lot of other viruses. Um, are there mutations that might uh, become an issue? Um, in terms of mutations that are rapidly taking over the globe, one that you might have heard of is this D614G mutation. That wouldn't in any way impact the ability of this nanobody to bind. There don't seem to be any receptor binding domain mutations that are rapidly taking over the population. That being said, um, escape variants are, you know, something that you always need to be considering in viruses, which is if you give something uh, that is meant to, you know, kill the virus or stop it from uh, replicating, is there a way that would, that that virus can escape that? Um, you always need to be keeping that in mind. And so in order to get at that question, which is what are the benefits of nanobody 11 or another nanobody, we have some other nanobodies that we didn't discuss that also target the virus. In terms of potency, nanobody 6 was the best from a potency standpoint, but the benefit of other nanobodies is that you can make a, a cocktail in order to prevent um, the issue of escape uh, variants. That being said, uh, because coronavirus mutates so slowly and it doesn't seem like that there are any receptor binding domain mutations taking over the population, we're not terribly worried about this. And the ability to generate a new version of nanobody 6 
pretty rapidly also gives us comfort that if something were to arise, I think that we can um, address it on a reasonable time scale. Great. So I think that tackles the questions that um, at least I have visible. Yeah, I think that was fantastic. Thank you guys so much. Uh, let's just hope that uh, either the government gives you a billion dollars to bring this to market or there's a company you find that, uh, that wants to invest in, uh, in the process. So again, thanks very much. That was great. And looking forward to more great work coming from the lab labs that you're running so all right gentlemen take care you've been a great audience thank you so much we'll see you in the coming weeks we'll get to know each other well and as we continue to learn about COVID-19 take care now great thanks everybody thanks thank you for having us You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.